Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ve sallallahu ala seyyidina ve mevlana ve nebina Muhammedin sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem. Esselamu aleykum ve rahmetullahi ve berekatuhu. Welcome back to Left or Right, The Straight Path, Please. Our podcast series brought to you by Misk Women, the Muslim Institute for Sacred Knowledge. My name is Um Abdullah. And I'm very happy to welcome you to our next episode on The Straight Path, A Sociological Perspective. Please join me as we begin, as is our custom, with Imam Haddad's dua for seeking knowledge. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Nawaitu ta'allamu wa ta'aleem wa tadakkura wa tadkir. والنفع والانتفاع والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على تمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله والدعاء إلى الهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله ومرضاته وكربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم All praises for Allah, the Lord of the worlds I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of His Messenger وسلم, to call to guidance, to direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance of Allah, His divine pleasure, closeness and His reward, the most exalted and high. Amin. Remember, as I mention in every episode, you can find that dua on our Instagram page at Misk Women. And please come over to Facebook and join us on our private group, Misk Women Halakha, where we post our episodes and other interesting information, inshallah. Okay, let's get right into it because we have some fascinating content to cover today and I hope you will find this extremely interesting in light of what we have covered in the last two episodes on our overview of conservatism and Marxism. So inshallah what we're looking at today is our straight path metaphor which is contained in Surah Al-Fatiha. And if you need some revision of that and the concepts and elements of that, I would encourage you to go back to episodes 4 to 8 in this series. And inshallah, you will find there a good summary um, of the straight path metaphor. And inshallah, what we are going to do today, inshallah, is take that metaphor from another angle. And this is the sociological perspective but specifically from the work of Imam Ghazali, may Allah have mercy on him, raise his rank and benefit us by him in the two abodes. Amen. And also we will be looking at very briefly just touching on the main concepts in the works of Imam Raghib al-Asfahani who came before Imam Ghazali and also briefly mention Ibn Khaldun who came a couple of centuries after Imam Ghazali. So we will look at those two together first as there is a bit of a similarity there in some of the concepts and then we will spend the rest of the episode inshallah looking at the straight path metaphor from a sociological perspective as expounded in Imam Ghazali's book 26 of his magnum opus the Ihya Ulum al-Din the book the revival of the Islamic sciences and that chapter is entitled Dham ad-dunya, the blameworthiness of the world. Okay, so to orient ourselves in this episode and its content, inshallah, let's just take a very brief overview of what we've covered in the last two episodes. So when we talk about sociological theory, it's not just something specifically involving human beings and their relations on their own, but of course it has to take into account the economic relations between people, the political relations between people, the cultural concepts that bind people together in certain patterns and customs and ways of behavior. So a sociological theory includes everything that goes on in a society. And we've looked at conservative theories which emerged in Western Europe after the Enlightenment. And we've had a look at the main principles that they involve. 
So just to list them to refresh our memory, inshallah, we've looked at conservative theories of man and we've looked at how during that time religious views and religious concepts and understandings of the world began to be replaced by a more reasonable and empirically backed up scientific point of view. And the main concepts that were developed in that time were this concept of freedom and the political systems of democracy, of liberal democracy, and most importantly, the rule of law by which people consented to adhere to, which would enable this freedom in terms of the freedom to pursue wealth and the freedom to pursue happiness would be enshrined. So that meant that there were certain laws in place which didn't impinge on a person's inherent quality and need as a human being to develop and live according to their freedom and their will. And so economically from that we got a free enterprise and free market economy, which was not restricted too much by any government or other obstacles there and it enabled people to trade openly and of course the greatest expression of that was through colonial dominance, European colonial dominance all over the world and the pursuit of the Europeans' freedom and economic wealth came through establishing themselves in illegal occupation in foreign lands, taking over exploiting people, their natural resources, and enslaving people, which was upon which they built their societies and their economies, and we are seeing the consequences of that play out today. So that's basically a few of the main principles, values, and concepts of conservatism, and if we look at society through that lens, then that's what we will see and find. If we go back and just briefly review Marxism and the left, then Marxism was, of course, in opposition to that. So um, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels developed their sociological theory or their understanding of society and how it worked, primarily from an economic point of view where they saw an inherent inequality in power relations between those who owned the mode of production and those who simply sold their labour in order to work within that mode or means of production, acquiring a wage which wasn't satisfactory for them to meet their needs. Um, and their view was that this inherent power structure had to be overcome through a class struggle and a revolution which depended on the masses waking up to their exploitation, to their alienation from their work and to the inherent dehumanisation that they were subjected to through this imbalance of power relations. So they needed to stand up, revolt, overthrow, regroup and continue in this process until they reach a state of utopia, which was basically economic equality or the equal distribution of wealth throughout society. So that required a new type of government which was very much in control and was able to control on behalf of the whole of the society economy and production and redistribute that so that the relations between all people were equal. Okay, so that's just a very brief summary and hopefully you understand that more clearly after the last couple of episodes. So these really are theories, these are ways of looking at the world and of projecting certain values and certain ideas that people have as a means of interpreting what they see around them and what's going on. But when we step away from that, which are obviously extremely materialistic and ultimately very secular ways of understanding human relations and human society, then we need to go back to our Islamic concepts and our scholars from our own tradition those who are grounded firmly in the Islamic scholarly and spiritual tradition and see how have Muslims across time first of all observed and then understood society and social relations and of course all the branches which emerge from that economics and politics etc. So if we look first of all at Raghib al-Asfahani who was a great imam in just prior he died actually only a couple of years before Imam Ghazali did. So he was pretty much the same time in the 5th century of the Hijra. 
and he was a tremendous scholar, mashallah. One of his great works was writing a book on the Mufradat al-Gharib fil-Qur'an, so a book on all the vocabulary in the Qur'an, which has actually been translated into English, um, but it is an essential book for any student of knowledge to have that in their library. That was one of his great contributions. And in terms of his sociological theory, if you like, which is, of course, a modern term, but that's uh, the term we're using, then he understood society mostly from an ethical and moral framework, which was, of course, heavily grounded in the Quranic worldview. And he understood that there were really three uh, levels, if you like, or stages of society that existed. So the first is called Imaratul Ard, which is being and living in the world, which everybody partakes in. So he started to understand and conceive and perceive of society in this sense. So everyone, regardless of who you are, what religion, or anything, it doesn't matter, every single human being is engaged in being and living in the world. Then after that, there comes another aspect of engagement that some people are involved in, and that's the ibadatullah. So that's worshipping Allah, and not everybody is engaged in that. And then there's another level, and it's not that they're really uh, subsequent levels or things that develop in a stage, like Marxism has this concept of this uh, continuous process of conflict and resolution and conflict and resolution till utopia is achieved. It's nothing like that. It just means that there are different and concurrent stages that people all living together are engaged in at any time simultaneously. So the third one is called Khilafatullah. And this is when people who are not only being and living in the world and worshipping Allah, but they began to worship Allah to the point where they reach the highest possible station of their being and living in the world, which is when they begin this process and complete this process in their lifetime called تخلق بأخلاق الله or, or it's called marifa or irfan. So this is when the person reaches a higher state of spiritual gnosis and they begin to take on the actual divine qualities and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are possible for a human being to emulate. So there are certain qualities such as rahmah, mercy. So when a person becomes the most merciful person that they can become, then they have taken on a portion of that divine quality of rahmah and so on. I don't want to spend too much time, but I think that gives the idea. So he saw human beings and their relation to each other through this ethical framework and framework where people develop themselves. He didn't look so much in terms of, say, economics and politics and things like that, but he saw the person in the world on a spiritual path and a spiritual journey. And the other great scholar is Ibn Khaldun. He came after Imam Ghazali, but we're going to talk about him before we go into Imam Ghazali because he also saw the world in similar terms as Imam Raghib al-Asfahani, and his work was focused more on looking at Imarat al-Ard, or al-Umran, which is civilization itself. Ibn Khaldun, he was born in Tunis in 1332, in the Christian era, and he died in Cairo in 1406. And he was a jurist in the Maliki school of fiqh, and he was also a judge, and he was extremely well-traveled. And on his journeys, he began to observe and write down his observation about the types of people and societies and cultures that he saw. And he realized that what had already come forward in the history books about people needed some revision. What he felt that needed to be revised in history as it had come forth was what was true and what was false. So you could say in a kind of crude way that he was kind of the forerunner for fake news because he wanted to clear up all the false reports of history so that what has come through as historical records is something that could be verified and that would be reasonable. So he mentions this golden city somewhere in the desert in Yemen, but he says it would be impossible for that golden city to exist and not have every single person know about it. How come it was a place that people could never find, for example? So he was more into trying to ascertain things from that point of view, and he actually uses 
a methodology which is found in the Hadith literature uh, as a means of determining truth and falsehood. He often gets misunderstood as being a scholar who focused on the rise and fall of civilizations. That wasn't his intent, although of course he covers that, but what he wanted to do, as I said, was re-establish history and to look specifically at society and how it works without going too much into the ethical framework that Imam Raghib Asfahani had used, but rather he wanted to establish within an Islamic framework his understanding of society and he laid out the principles for that and he says in his book Al-Muqaddimah uh, that he's put down the principles and it's up to those in the generations after him to develop that. So if you read in any modern kind of sociological textbook these days, you'll see that he's mentioned there as the father of sociology because he was the first to lay down these principles, although he says himself too that surely the people before him knew about these things and were concerned with it as well. So there's just two examples of how some of our scholars in the past have taken the time to want to understand human beings and their sociological relationships more. Okay, so let's go on now to Imam Ghazali and book 26 of the Ihya called Dham al-Dunya. Okay, in our previous podcast, we have tried to establish this concept of the straight path journey. As it is mentioned in Surah Al-Fatiha, so we have this paradigm or this worldview which is encapsulated in that surah and within it there is this very strong concept that we are on a path and that we ask Allah to keep us on the straight path, on a sirat al-mustaqim and we have explained in that, in the previous episodes, about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his attributes. There is Tawheed, obviously, servanthood, and following the way of those who are blessed and not those who have gone astray. Also within that is the establishment of our contingent dependency and reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by seeking his divine assistance in all of our affairs. And we also looked at Imam Haddad's concept of the five lives of man and the two journeys, the voluntary journey and the involuntary journey. So the Siratul Mustaqim is composed of those two journeys. And what's really significant about Imam Ghazali's book, the Ihya Ulum al-Din, is that he has established the whole framework of that book as an explanation of that journey. So the first quarter of the book is on ilm, is on knowledge. And the second quarter of the book is on amal or mu'amala. So this is custom and dealings between people. The third part is on al-muhlikad, which is the destructive qualities, which are the internal qualities which a person needs to rid themselves of. And the fourth quarter of the book is on al-munjiyat or the salvatory virtue. So the qualities which will bring a person salvation in this dunya and in the akhirah. And so he's put those concepts within this idea of the sayer, of the journey. So a person has to begin with knowledge and then they start to enact that through their customs and practice and interactions and transactions with people and which is their outside or external performance and then they need to purify their inside and then replace what they have eliminated from themselves of bad qualities with good qualities and inshallah at the end of it return to Allah with a qalbun salim with a heart that is sound and pure and ready to meet its Lord. So book 26 which is in the third quarter and this is important it's in the quarter of the muhlikad of the destructive qualities of the things that a person needs to rid from themselves and book 26 the condemnation or blameworthiness of the world is there primarily because a person needs to rid themselves of their love for this dunya from their heart and this is really the crux of Imam Ghazali's sociological concept that a person is in the world and they know what they know, they act how they act, they either do or do not purify themselves, but what will really be the cause for their distraction 
on the path that they are on, this inevitable journey back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is the degree to which they love this dunya, which is their current abode. And the abode that they need to somehow make right for themselves in order to live here, but ultimately it's the abode that they will leave behind. So according to how much a person gets distracted is according to how much love, how engrossed they are in this dunya that will take him away from his real objective and purpose which is to worship Allah and may or may not be the cause of his downfall. So when a person rids themselves of love for this dunya whilst they're living in it, then the heedlessness that's required for them in order to be busy and to live in the dunya won't be to the extent that it ultimately leads to his destruction. Imam Ghazali says that if the human being has not thought about death, which is the very end of the road, then he hasn't understood the finite nature of his life in the world and he hasn't understood that he's actually here and created for worship and that he's not here just for the sake of being here. So when Imam Ghazali looks from this point of view, then what he's looking at or his analysis is based on the main principles of what a human being needs in order to survive here and his interaction with those around him regarding his needs and regarding their needs for their sustenance. He also says that dunya mazra'atul akhira, which is a statement that I've made in a few other podcasts, that this is the world in which he plants his future and which will be reaped in the next life. And that this is actually a statement which should guide a person and to remember their purpose. So the sa'i, the striving of a person in this sayer, in this journey back to Allah, is dependent on certain needs being fulfilled. So what are the needs of the human being? And how are social relations built around those needs? And how does one procure those needs for oneself and also be a part of the provision of those for other people. And what is it about this that preoccupies the human being to the extent that he or she might just forget their purpose of being here and become heedless of the journey and the outcome of the journey and where they're going and most importantly to who are they going, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is really encapsulated in Imam Ghazali's statement where he defines the dunya itself. And he says, I'lam. أن الدنيا عبارة عن أعيان موجودة وللإنسان فيها حظ وله في إصلاحها شغل. The world consists of existent and real things. So that means real things that exist with essences, with a hakika that are made up of matter and that are real substances from which the human being derives some gain or positive benefit and in whose pursuit he is occupied or involved. And this Imam Ghazali says is actually what the dunya is. It's this created realm which exists of things that the human being needs a portion of and that keeps him busy in it and that's what he's doing here. So whilst he's doing that though, he mustn't forget about his journey. And he quotes an ayah from the Quran from Surah Al-Kahf. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna ja'alna ma'ala al-ardi zinatan laha linabaluahum ayyuhum ahsanu amala. That we have put all beauty that is on the earth as a means by which man will be tested. Showing which of them are the best in conduct. So how a person conducts themselves while they seek trying to benefit from and pursue these things in the world that are required for his existence is part of the whole process and journey of being here. So what are these things that the human being is busy with? So first of all Imam Ghazali says that the dunya consists of these realities, the earth, the waterways, the plains and the mountains, dwellings and abodes, and what is in them is to be used by us. And those four needs that the human being has, which need to be provided for by his natural environment, are food, drink, clothing, and he says manka, which 
means spouses, but it also implies with it a concept of shelter because he needs to have a place in order to cohabitate and to live his social life. So of plants, he says, we derive food, medication, housing and fuel. And of the minerals that are in the ground, then we derive from them, from copper and lead, things like utensils and tools. And from gold and silver, we obtain coinage and decoration and jewels and utilities as well. From animals that are provided, we obtain food, transportation, fabrics and coverings and decoration. And he says animals are actually divided into two groups. There are those that are non-human, such as beasts, and we get certain things from them, such, such as what we've just mentioned. And from human beings, which are the other type of animal, then there are the physical and the hearts of the human beings that a person seeks to obtain and can busy themselves too much from their real purpose for being here through these things. And the first is trying to obtain people's hearts or win over other people's hearts in order to attain status. And the second is taking control of or owning other people's bodies. And that would be through employment or service or work. And we've seen the extreme form of that through slavery. So this is where people busy themselves in their pursuit of the dunya to the point where they can transgress in any of these areas so excessively that they actually bring about not only the destruction of those people who they have taken control of, but they bring about their own destruction as well. So sometimes it's through an extreme example that you can really see what's intended here. So a person's distraction really is based on all of those things in two ways. Imam Ghazali says, number one, by his own heart for the love of those things and for the love of the dunya. So just by loving those things excessively and engrossing himself in the pursuit of those things excessively, then he can lose his way. And secondly, through his body, which is in his work and preparation of those things for their use and consumption, either for himself or either for him to sell or trade or to provide for others through which he would receive some benefit. Imam Ghazali says that if the human being knew himself and his Lord and the reason or the wisdom for which these things have been provided by Allah and are known collectively as the dunya, then he would know that these things are not created except as a means by which he can journey or wayfare or return back to Allah. And the word that he uses in that particular paragraph is daba. So when he says that these things are not created except as a daba, what he's saying there is a metaphorical use of the term riding animal or a mount. And he says that the human body is the vehicle, is the riding mount. Because the body of the human being cannot remain here for the duration of the person's journey back to Allah. So you can't live unless your vehicle, your body, is sustained by the fulfillment of those primary needs, which is the food, drink, clothing and housing and cohabitation in human relationships. And he gives a really beautiful story or parable for that. And he gives this story of the person who's going for Hajj, who sets off on his Hajj pilgrimage and he has his riding camel and he stops at one of the resting places on the way. And there he ties his camel and he feeds it and he waters it and he cleans it and he washes it and tends to it and adorns it with layers of colourful blankets and cloth and bells and tassels and all the things that we see camels often decorated with. And he gives it all types of grass and grains and he even cools water for it with ice. And his attention to his camel is so much and so excessive that it's actually caused him to forget about the caravan or the group that he is traveling with and it ends up departing without him. And then he realizes once his companions and the group have gone that he was negligent and heedless 
about the Hajj, which was his intended purpose because he was only travelling to go for the Hajj. So his intended destination has been forgotten and the caravan, the actual journey with which he was travelling to reach his destination has gone on without him. And he forgot that on his own that he and his camel would be subject to the potential threats such as the hyenas and that they themselves would end up being prey and easy pickings if you like for those who wish to prey upon them and hurt them. Then he compares it to the insightful Haji. So the person who sets off for Hajj and doesn't care for his camel, his riding mount, any more than is required. He tends to its food and he attends to its water. Everything the best that he can possibly do and according to what is necessary to provide for it. And along the way and he, he ties it where he needs to tie it. And Imam Ghazali says, just as his heart is tied to the Kaaba and the Hajj itself. So he doesn't tie his camel in a place where it looks like there's some degree of permanency. And he never forgets that he is on a journey to the Akhirah. Meaning he doesn't forget that he's on the journey to his Hajj. He doesn't busy himself by tying his body to the dunya with anything except what is necessary thereof. And Imam Ghazali says, just as a person doesn't enter the bathroom unless there's a need to relieve themselves, then there's no difference between his need to consume food because he should only consume food according to his requirement. And so whatever you consume and enter your body is really the same as what you eliminate from your body because all you're doing is fulfilling physical requirements and necessary bodily functions. So Imam Ghazali says that what occupies a person the most is their stomach because food is a daily necessity and then the other needs such as shelter and clothing and social relations are of slightly less importance because once a person has acquired the basics of those and they don't really have a need to expand on that because the basics have been met. So if only a person knew the reasons for his need for these things then Imam Ghazali tells us he would reduce his preoccupation with them and he wouldn't be consumed in the worldly tasks required to attain them for himself. And indeed he says it is their ignorance of the world and what is in it, that's the very thing that consumes them. So when a person is so busy trying to amass wealth, when a person is so busy with all the things of this dunya which are finite and will not last, then what he's actually doing is showing his ignorance of those very things. And the ignorance of his portion of them that he's required to take from it in order to sustain himself and see himself through in the best way but without any excess. So that really is the point here. A person needs to find the middle way, not go excessively either through abstaining or through amassing. So now that the needs of the human have been explained, Imam Ghazali goes on to tell us about the occupations of the world which have made people go wrong in forgetting their purpose. And he says that these occupations arise because of those needs of food and clothing and shelter. So food needs to be consumed for subsistence, clothing obviously for protection from hot and cold and to cover one's nakedness, and shelter also to protect from hot and cold and from outside threats and possible destructions. So in order to meet those needs, then there are five occupations which developed out of that. And we can say that even today, although our world is far more complex in terms of products and services and consumption, then really they all go back to these same five occupations that Imam Ghazali observed and noted and analysed in his time about 900 years ago. And so they are agriculture for the production of crops, pasture or being a shepherd for the procurement of animals and their products, hunting, weaving for fabric and construction for housing. And so each of these occupations therefore required certain tools and machineries and implements and, and things that would enable those raw materials to be acquired and processed and used. So then a person needs skills or a society needs skills such as carpentry and woodwork, metalwork, 
which would be for implements and weapons and uh, all types of tools. Fabric production, weaving cotton and wool and yarn and then spinning that into a thread that could be used to produce fabrics and on it goes. And so in terms of work, that's really the basis of it. And in terms of the social life of a person, then a female partner is required for a man and a male partner is required for a woman in order that they produce offspring and raise children. So there's a social need that a human being cannot fulfill on his own, just as a human can't fulfill the production of all those other needs. And families and groups will live together and have disputes and they will dispute about things like land and property and goods. So there's a need for measurement. There is a need for determining the boundaries of land, for determining quantities and things like that. They need to protect themselves. So there's a military. Um, then we need arbitration and jurisprudence because people need certain laws to live by and a regulation of the different aspects of their life and implementation of laws. Then there's a need for politicians um, and for judges, for people to be able to have knowledge and discernment and who are able to determine and work out disputes between people. And if there are those who are engaged in such activities and they can't possibly be in, engaged also in farming or crop production, so therefore they need to be paid through taxation because they're not receiving their wage from the land or from other natural resources and then there needs to be a ruler or a king who's in charge of the whole society. So Imam Ghazali says that with our use of farmers and shepherds and craftsmen and the military and those in services or the provision of services which is everything other than those basic needs then we have the foundations of the society, of the individual and the individual's interaction between all the others there. Then he says stores are required to make sure that there is enough grain and goods for people uh, whenever they require them. And then he says that if people were not heedless for at least a part of the day and if they didn't spend their hours toiling away, then everything would collapse. So the individual would collapse through starvation, societies would collapse through that and, and other needs, there'd be no procreation and everything would perish and there would be no people worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah has made people to be heedless to a certain extent and it says in the Quran, La tansa nasibaka min dunya and don't forget your portion of the world. So Imam Ghazali doesn't think that everybody should be an ascetic to the point where they are extreme in their abstinence, nor should they be so extreme in their love for this dunya, but they should follow the middle way and take only what they need. He goes on to talk about the bad occupations such as thieving and begging, where people depend on what others earn and they use their intellect for the wrong purposes. And he also discusses the groups of those who have missed the real purpose of their existence here. And they are those who are overwhelmed by ignorance and heedlessness. And he says, they eat to live and live to eat. And we have a very similar expression ourselves. And he says they're not happy and nor do they have any deen. They don't have any proper way to live their life. Then there are those of a different type of ignorance and heedlessness who think that life is all just about entertainment and enjoyment more than anything else. So they eat and they drink and they party and they have fun the whole time and it's just fun, fun, fun. And he says that they are like those who live like beasts. Then there are those who think that happiness comes through amassing wealth and they spend their life in strategies and plans trying to get more wealth but they're actually quite miserly and so their joy comes in just seeing that bank balance grow and then they only leave behind their wealth and they themselves meet with a bad ending because they spent all their time pursuing that and not fulfilling their purpose. Then he mentions that there are those who think that happiness is attained through a good reputation. So they want to be praised and they want to be lauded for their prosperity. And he says they spend their money, their wealth on clothes and vehicles. And he says engraving the doors of their residences. And he says this is primarily for keeping up appearances. So they also have 
gone off the track. Then he says there are those who are preoccupied with status and standing. So they only care about people lowering themselves in humility towards them and they're not interested in preparing themselves for their afterlife. Then he says there are many other types and all of them are driven by extremes to excess either in abstinence or in accumulating this dunya which shows a love for it in both ways. And he talks about those who engage in spiritual practices which are not sanctioned by the Sharia and which are extreme, such as celibacy, such as extreme spiritual acts where a person actually brings himself through their abstinence from food or through other practices to a state of near death and who then think that they have attained closeness to Allah through what they experienced at that time through a certain spiritual state but not realizing that that excessiveness has actually taken them not just to the point where they could have killed themselves but to, they've taken themselves right away because they haven't followed what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made them for we're not made for extreme spiritual practice we're made for the middle way, for the path where we take what we need of the dunya, we spend our time in the dunya fulfilling our needs, but we don't ever move away from our understanding that we are spiritual people primarily, that we are returning to Allah and that our soul will never die. So in order to summarize now, Imam Ghazali's sociological theory, as you can see, is very much couched within this straight path metaphor. So a person's knowledge, action, purification of themselves and adornment with good qualities, both externally and internally, is what really governs a person's interaction with others and the social structure. And we need to remember too that Whenever we interact with other people or whatever we do in our daily life, we're always interacting on three different levels. We're interacting, first of all, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So whatever we do with regards to others, we're really showing our strength of our iman and the firmness of our faith. Because if we deal with people in a good way, in a prophetic way, then we are showing that we are believers in Allah and following his way. If we cheat and deceive people and steal from people, then we're showing the state of our faith through that as well. So any interaction we do is really interaction with Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's interaction with his prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, according to the extent to which we follow the sunnah through our actions. And then it's the dealing with individuals. And we will be held accountable on the day of judgment. So Imam Ghazali says that, once a person is free of the demands of the body, then he can direct his inner resolution to Allah and be devoted to dhikr and worship, controlling himself so that he doesn't go to any excess and that he doesn't deplete himself or bring about his own destruction because of his veering off the straight path in his journey. And we need to remember too that when we talk about this straight path, and this journey that it's actually something that is measured and something which we already know what the boundaries are and what the scale of that is and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran al-waznu yawma idhinil haqqa so the mizan or the scale by which we judge our actions in this dunya and how we determine and act is really the very same scale that we will be held accountable to on the day of judgment. So how can it be, for example, that on the day of judgment we're going to be held accountable for our action, yet we didn't act here according to that very same scale? So it's not like there's two different systems going on. So what's there is also here. And then when we think about how do we understand the world, do we really see the world just in terms of power and conflict? And if we do, and if we act on that, then how are we understanding how we're going to be judged and held accountable for our actions in the next life if it is that we're basing our actions in this life on a completely different scale? Or if it is that we think that somehow our life is just about the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of happiness through that wealth, and it really doesn't matter if we exploit people and steal things from them and we can do whatever we want, then how do we really think that that's going to stand up for us and be the basis upon which we're going to face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and think that somehow that's going to be okay and that we'll be judged positively 
on that day when the deeds really matter. So it's the Sharia that regulates and it's the Sharia that keeps us on the middle way. And the more we adhere to that, to the extent that we can, then inshallah we are actually enabling ourselves to be judged the best way on the day of judgment. So if we look at this theory of Imam Ghazali, in light of the core values and of the right and the left that we've already looked at before, then when we think about freedom and the whole conservative notion of the rational human being pursuing this freedom and wealth, then Imam al-Ghazali also has freedom completely encapsulated in his sociological theory. But freedom is not attained through wealth and exploitation. On the contrary, freedom is attained when a person can rid their heart of the love for this dunya then they have attained real freedom. And if we look at the core concept of the left, which is struggle and conflict, then again Imam Ghazali encapsulates and encompasses that whole concept of struggle, but within a way which completely reflects this straight path journey that we are on. Because the struggle that he's talking about is the struggle against the lower self. It's not a struggle against assumptions of power relations in order to reach a utopia which can never be attained because paradise is not here. There's no paradise in this dunya. Paradise is in the next life and as we are told that the dunya is a place of struggle against the lower self. It's a place of struggle against the shaitan, against the dunya itself and against a person's desires and lowly whims and caprices. It's not a place that we're ever going to attain complete happiness in but what we do attain happiness in is, the, is being content with Allah's decree and being content with what we have been given and knowing that our job here is to worship Allah and that is our purpose and that is exactly what Imam Ghazali has tried to explain in his theory. Okay, so to conclude inshallah, I would like to end with a hadith and also with a dua. And the Prophet, salatu wassalam, our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings upon him and may Allah join us with him in the highest ranks of paradise inshallah. Imam Ghazali mentions a hadith of his at the beginning of book 26. And there's a little story here where the great companion Abu Ubaidah ibn al-Jarrah went to Bahrain and when he came back to Medina he came with a certain amount of money and that the Ansar, the, the helpers of Medina, they heard about his arrival and they prayed the Fajr prayer with the Prophet and when he was finished praying he was about to leave but the people stopped him and he smiled because he knew that they knew that there was money to distribute. He said, I think you've heard that Abu Ubaidah has brought something from Bahrain. And they said, Indeed, O Messenger of Allah. And he replied, I announce to you good news. Expect to receive what will please you. For by Allah, I do not fear poverty for you. But he said, I fear that the abundance of the world extends to you as it was extended to those before you. And we know that civilizations get destroyed when they become overly prosperous or excessive. Like it's often said about the Roman civilization was destroyed because they became so wealthy and complacent. And he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as a consequence, you will compete for it as they competed and it will destroy you as it destroyed them. And he said, the worst that I fear for you is that which Allah will bring forth for you of the blessings of the dunya. And someone asked, what are the blessings of the earth, of the dunya? And he said, the splendor of the world, of the very needs that Imam Ghazali has outlined and which can distract a person to the point where they become heedless of their purpose here and heedless of their objective, which is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let's finish with a dua, which is actually by Imam Haddad. And it's a dua that's recommended to read after the Fajr prayer and is in the Khulasa, which is the collection of uh, litanies and adhkar from our great teacher, Al-Habib Omar ibn Muhammad ibn Salim ibn Hafid, may Allah preserve and protect him. It's in his book, The Khulasa. 
and it says Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Allahumma akhrij min qalbi kulla qadrin lid-dunya wa kulli mahallil khalq yamilu bi ila ma'siyatik aw yashghalni an ta'atik aw yahulu bayni wa bayna at-tahaqqiqi bi ma'rifatik al-khasa wa mahabbatik al-khalisa wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin and it means, Oh Allah, remove from my heart the love for this world and remove from it the place that's in it for creation, that which will lead me to disobedience of you and all that will distract me from your obedience or the love for this world that would come between me and the certainty of your absolute knowledge and sincere love. And may the blessings and peace of Allah be upon our Master Muhammad, upon his family and companions, and praise be to Allah, Lord of the worlds. So if we read that every day, inshallah, then we will be on our way to extracting our love of this dunya from our hearts and enabling us to live according to our purpose without going too extreme and falling off the straight path either side, inshallah. So we ask Allah to bless us with a clear understanding of this knowledge and we ask Allah to connect us to him in the most pure and perfect way and to give us a full comprehension of what we are doing here and why and to enable us to resist that which pulls us to excessiveness in either side and to keep firmly to the middle way into the straight path following your beloved Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and following the example of his companions and those who followed him and those of the salihin and the awliya inshallah we ask Allah to keep us in good company of those who will constantly remind us of you and will help us on our journey and we ask you to enable us to benefit others on their journey and to make us keys and openings of goodness and to enable us to close any evil or bad and inshallah bless us with everything that will enable us in this most difficult of times that we live in to come through with success and putting joy in the heart of the Prophet and enabling us to be sincere through it all. Insha'Allah wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.